Good afternoon. This afternoon I want to talk to you very quickly about a book on education called Reclaiming Education, Renewing Schools and Universities in Contemporary Western Culture. It was edited by Catherine Runcie and David Brooks. Now, I was very fortunate to be invited to contribute a chapter from the perspective of somebody who was at the coalfaces, a teacher. All of the other contributors are highly successful lecturers, authors, art critics and journalists. And so I was one of the lucky few teachers who was asked to contribute a chapter. So what I'd like to do is read for you my chapter called The Cultivation of Memory, Developing Memory Habits in the 21st Century Classroom. Now, even if you're not a student, I think what I have written here in this chapter will be applicable to everybody. Because don't you want to have a better memory? I know I did. And now that I've applied some of these principles, I'm starting to um, you know, really enjoy a greater sense of recall. Now, before I start my chapter, I must do a very quick plug and let you know that you can purchase this text, Reclaiming Education, by Catherine Runcie and David Brooks, the editors, at Amazon. So you can get a, a paper copy or even an electro electronic copy for, to download. So if you love what you hear um, from my chapter and you're curious to know what other people have contributed about art, maths, Latin, um, and the state of you know, universities in Australia, then please go on to Amazon and purchase yourself a copy. Okay, The Cultivation of Memory, Developing Memory Habits in the 21st Century Classroom by Natalie Kennedy. The disparity between the high quality of student work and their ability to respond to complex questions in class discussions sparked a deep curiosity in me as a teacher. Why was this such a noticeable trend? Why did students reluctantly answer questions, caveman-like, with fragmented phrases and threadbare vocabulary? Why was there no force, persuasion or beauty in their articulated thinking? Had they become a product of their age, outsourcing their knowledge and their memory to Google? All of that trivia could be accessed at a click of a button, so why bother trying to store it themselves? One can tell though when a speaker or writer has done a quote dump from Google, it just doesn't ring true. The quote or the piece of dialogue stolen from a novel summary that is drudged up online and pasted into a thoughtless collage of ideas just doesn't have the conviction of authenticity. English pedagogues can't keep calling forth from the empty heads and hearts of their students something that is rich, powerful, beautiful, if we don't first show them how to furnish their minds and hearts with literary treasures. The cultivation of the memory and the power of recall will be the vehicle that will deliver a change to this paucity of thought and discussion within the classroom. In English class, my top students often remember their speeches and quotations for their assessment. However, after these assessments are finished, the lines echo in the distant horizon of their minds and are then lost. 
Strayer and Norsworthy state that there is no sharp distinction between habit and memory. Students' recall power, therefore, becomes dependent on their power of retention, number of associations, and organisation of ideas. Elements like repetition, attention, interest, and vividness of impression are the bedrock elements needed for the development of this brute memory. If we want our students to have recall of the complex vocabulary, elegant phrasing, quotes that provoke and delight them, and paradoxes that befuddle them beyond the classroom and assessment paradigms, we must instruct them how to cultivate their long-term memory. It is profound in its simplicity. The act of penning our thoughts down on paper along with the immortal thoughts of great minds is the first step in the cultivation of our memory. Now, like a priest who is grieved by the parishioner's confession of sin, I sadly have had a string of students over the years confess that they haven't actually read the set novel. Relieved post-purge, they would then boast that chapter summaries were quite efficient at giving them the fodder for the assessment and their good result testifies to that. In the harsh but true words of William Franklin Webster, people are often too lazy to think and too indolent to read. Maybe the student's diet of second-hand, pre-digest versions of the primary text is at fault though. The dreaded textbook or chapter summaries are the middlemen, the fragmented and unrecognisable snippets of the original source presented as an acceptable substitute. The student has cultivated a dependence on feeding only upon other people's ideas, summaries and selections about the primary text. The problem with this approach is that it assumes that there is one way to react to the primary text and is entirely impersonal. There is no time given for the student to reflect and ruminate. In the discipline of English, students actually need to read the novel and personally respond to it. So the first thing I did to encourage students to read the novel was to get rid of chapter questions. I required my students to do reflection entries for each chapter instead. They could comment briefly on plot points, topics for further research and other questions that were raised by the passage, along with descriptions, interesting phrases and figurative devices that appealed to them. They were also encouraged to write on sticket notes within the novel or the play. This is an adaptation of Making a Book Your Own, where Mortimer Adler states that full ownership of a book only comes when you've made it part of yourself via the act of writing within the pages of it. Now Mortimer goes on to state that the act of writing down one's reaction to the text also helps you to remember the thoughts of the author. These marginalia are a useful didactic tool for the student could also be a fascinating window of insight into the minds of great luminaries and lay people alike. Mark O'Connell mused in the New Yorker that the rising popularity of marginalia is due to the increasing self-awareness of people's reading practices. Encouraging students to take an interest in the practice of marginalia will also highlight that there are reading practices and tools that can be employed when approaching a text. However, 
The magic of marginalia can become a problem in the school context. Students' marginalia are seen in prosaic terms as wanton damage to school property. English teachers might have to persuade students to buy their own copies of the text if the full benefits of this practice are to be experienced. Writing within the pages of a book allows the student to see that there can be a conversation between them and the author of a text. This creates a more intimate, relational bond that has the potential to leave a greater impression upon their memories. It also leaves forensic evidence for the suspicious teacher that the pupil has indeed read the novel. We must help students decide what elements will be retained only for assessment and what elements they would like to take with them in life. Organisation of these ideas will be the first step. They will need one book for vocabulary and one journal or commonplace book to record quotes, descriptive prose and their impressions of novels, plays and films that move them especially. Author Ryan Holiday states, A commonplace book is a central resource or depository for ideas, quotes, antidotes, observations and information you come across during your life and didactic pursuits. The purpose of the book is to record and organise these gems for later use in your life, in your business, in your writing, speaking or whatever it is that you do. I have seen such an improvement in students' engagement levels when they begin their own commonplace book. They begin to realise that when they search and find buried treasure within the literary works studied, they now have a vessel that will contain them and go with them on life's journey. The sense of going beyond the frameworks of assessment and engaging in didactic practices that are intrinsically personal makes maintaining a commonplace book a rich and rewarding task for the student. Keeping a commonplace book invites them to sit with the text, mull it over, chew upon it, write within it, and then select which elements they will place inside. This sifting process hones their discernment and builds a stronger association within their memory. They will then begin to notice a shift. Other writers' words and sentiments start to become a part of how they think and in turn become a part of who they are. Like anything worth having though, effort and discipline are required. I was at the beach recently and feeling sapped of energy and I sat on the sand and in awe and wonder was struck by the beauty of the ocean. As I went to offer up praises in my mind about it, I drew a blank. If only I had been able to recall John Keats' poem On the Sea, where he encourages me to feast my eyes upon the wildness and the wideness of the sea. Out, out beyond, as I watched the ships that disappeared on the horizon, that feeling of anticipation might have been diagnosed as nothing more than my thoughts of adventure or longing for an unuttered dream leaving a shore upon the ship's bow. And to quote from the poem, For that strip of sapphire sea, set against the sky, far horizons means to me, and the ships go by, framed between the empty sky and the yellow sands, while my freed thoughts follow them out to other lands. And that was from Dorothy McKellar's The Open Sea.
I could have enjoyed kindred spirit Lucy Maud Montgomery's phrasing that the sea is a beautiful, sinuous thing in her poem The Sea Spirit. In the crowd on the beach that day, I would not have felt alone in my contemplations and adoration of the sea. Others have sat and waxed lyrical about how the sea reawakens them from their brooding contemplations. It keeps eternal whisperings around desert shores and with its mighty swell gluts twice ten thousand caverns till the spell of Hecate leaves them their old shadowy sound. Often tis in such gentle temper found that scarcely will the very smallest shell be moved for days from where it sometime fell when last the winds of heaven were unbound. O ye who have your eyeballs vexed and tired, feast them upon the wideness of the sea. O ye whose ears are dinned with uproar rude or fed too much with cloying melody, sit ye near some old cavern's mouth and brood until ye start as if the sea nymphs cried. And that was by John Keats on the sea. To continue, most importantly, their words that day would have saved me from my own vacuity at that moment. If I could have uttered those lines or even fragments of those lines, it would have caused my own to flow. In that solitary moment, rather than feeling mute in my musings, I could have been transported to another shore at a different time and seen that ocean through other eyes. I love the ocean devotion to it was hampered that day by lack of discipline. I was chastised by the experience and knew again the value of entering poems that I love for later recall into my commonplace book. I just have to pause there, break away from the chapter and think, oh my gosh, I sound like such a romantic weirdo. Anyway, to continue with my chapter. If a student or teacher simply writes down the quotation in their commonplace book and never revisits it, there may not be a strong enough connection for a call. They must, at various intervals throughout the year, reread their commonplace book. This return to their memory will help them to learn anew what they loved and to know again why they fell in love with it in the first place. If students are given opportunities throughout the year to share these musings with others in conversation, their memory and recall become stronger. And to break away from the chapter again, if that's not possible, even to reread their own memory work, their own commonplace book from time to time throughout the year, will help prompt their own memories for their own recall. Back to the chapter. Many students will purchase a commonplace book that is rather cumbersome to carry around during their day-to-day -day activities. In order for them practically to maintain a relationship with their commonplace book, they must also have a pocket notebook on them. Now this could be a diary, it could be a bullet journal. This is me off chapter again. Sorry, I'm finding it very hard not to talk off chapter, but I've really got into um, recently Ryder Carroll's bullet journaling and I have that with me everywhere. And it's such a great system when you have a thought or an idea or a creative, um, you know, little nugget that sort of comes to, to mind, you can pop it down that there in your bullet journal, which is always on you. All right, back to the chapter. Okay, in order for them to practically maintain a relationship with their commonplace book, they must also have a pocket notebook on them. And this is often seen as easier 
Um, this, this task is often seen as easier for handbagging, handbag carrying individuals and hipsters though. Often keeping a diary or a journal has been misrepresented as a feminine pursuit, leaving some male students cold. And now it becomes necessary then to remind our male students that history is full of great male politicians, writers, artists, comedians, doctors, architects, soldiers, priests, businessmen, professors and famous philosophers who have carried upon their person a notebook. Now, to go way back in time, in the Methodist Review, Pastor Ackerman succinctly expounded upon the value of a commonplace book and a pocket notebook. And he said, Have upon your study table, always accessible, a good-sized, substantially bound blank book. Whenever a germinant thought comes, seize your pen and write it down. Such thoughts will come out of your special course of literary reading, out of your cursory scanning of current fiction, even out of the five-minute glance given to the morning paper. Out of nowhere, and from anywhere, thought-compelling suggestions entirely foreign to the sermon on which you are just now engaged will frequently send you to your treasure book, and without any damage to present preparation, you will scribble down a page of matter that will set you on the fire at some future day, just when you are in need of inspiration and help. Have also a special vest pocket notebook and let nothing escape you. Maintaining a commonplace book and carrying a pocket notebook or any kind of notebook or even use your phone, you know, an app on your phone will further furnish the students' memories with clarity and force. This method will also help to sharpen their abilities to actively listen and observe people, places and ideas. Now, as you know, if you're an English teacher or a writer, observing people, how they act, how they walk, what they say, what they do, will really help you become a great writer as well. So always have a notebook. All right, back to the chapter. Grenville Kleiser suggests that one of the most important things that should be put to memory for a call are words. Not just any word or phrase, but the mastery of using the choice word the correct phrase, which in turn may reach the heart and awake the soul. The reciprocity between thought and language is clear. Kleiser suggests that what we think moulds the words we use and the words we use will react upon our thoughts. Hence, a study of words is actually a study of ideas and a stimulant to deep and original thinking. That's why I love words so much. According to the Reverend Jonathan Swift, it is a common speaker who only has one set of ideas and one set of words to clothe them in. This is not a supercilious snark, but rather a desperate wake-up call to the diligent student who desires to communicate precisely. Further to this thread of thought is George Orwell's alarming dystopian vision in 1984 of the narrowing of vocabulary as a way of controlling the way people think. Language engineer Sim delightedly admits to Winston that We're destroying words, scores of them, hundreds of them, every day. We're cutting the language down to the bone. Don't you see that the whole aim of newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. Every year, fewer and fewer words and the range of consciousness always a little smaller. 
The learning of complex, powerful and beautiful words and phrases not only becomes a genesis for a student's thinking, but a weapon to protect them against ignorance and subjugation. Hallelujah, preach it sister. I feel so strongly about it. When it comes to filling the student's toolkit with words, a more concentrated effort is required in order to gain mastery. Just as people wear many different hats, so too students need to recognise that words function in different forms. Many students who are familiar with and who can confidently use the verb reciprocate struggle to recognise it in recognise it in its noun form reciprocity. They can identify the verb desire, but rarely use it in its adjectival form, desirous. So I require students and remind students to look up different forms of the word and record them in their vocab books. I've encouraged students to try and remember trickier words by creating a visual image as a prompt. This is simply one form of a mnemonic device that can assist students in remembering their word study. Bramwell encourages students of vocabulary that once they have learnt how a word is made and have pinned an image of it in their mind, they will never forget it and the system will help them to look at other words fearlessly, break them down, tame them and then use them properly and effectively whenever they want to. Unfortunately, vocabulary lists within units of work are often only treated in isolation and are never taken beyond looking at the word and definition. Now, to speak off the chapter very quickly, um, if you're a teacher listening to this, you know, don't feel bad. I've done this too. We just so often in our, you know, crammed curriculum, we run out of time to really spend time with words and vocab. We can often give kids some, you know, a vocab list from the novel or the play and then move on. And it's not our fault. We just feel so pressed for time. Um, you know, it's really tricky to know how to um, at times justify taking up time in a lesson but I guess the way I've justified it to myself is I keep saying vocab words they're the tools of our subject it'd be like maths teachers saying we don't have time to learn times tables or science teachers saying we don't have time to learn formulas Um, we have to make time to you know, really study the tools of our trade and then we can move on to the uh, requirements of assessment. Anywho, back to the chapter. I began instructing my students to start with identifying two word phrases rather than just a single vocabulary word from their novels. William William Franklin Webster in the classic book English Composition and Literature states that The knowledge of words that the student derives from the dictionary is not sufficient. It is only by studying them in combination with other words that the influence of one word upon the other may be noted. Students will begin to see that words influence other words and at times can change in the presence of others as friends, enemies and lovers being in close proximity do. Words are no longer seen as these static, isolated units but as fluid, organic agents of power. From Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities and Little Dorrit, they could take down insensate brutality, not insensate on its own, or base insinuation, not insinuation, adult jumble, not adult 
These simple pairings point to the connotation of the key word's meaning. As they progress with this approach, they can begin to look for different types of phrasing. Kleiser's book, 15,000 Useful Phrases, which, by the way, is free on loyalbooks.com, provides the student with a mint of phrases at their command from which to draw when in need of the golden mean for expressing thought. The language praxis found in this book will help students to correct careless diction and slovenly speech and lead to the art of speaking and writing correctly. For after all, accuracy in the use of words is more a matter of habit than theory. A focus on prepositional phrasing can also double up as a grammar lesson. So students can study his list of prepositional phrases containing of, by, in, into, to and with. The following is a small selection of prepositional phrases using of. By, in, into, to and with. From Kleiser's 15,000 useful phrases. Abatement of misery. Accretions of time. Beggared of faith. Buoyancy of youth, laxity of mind, luxuriance of expression, obduracy of mind, period of lassitude, rectitude of soul, tenacity of execution, vagrancy of thought, animated by victory, condemned by posterity, disgusted by civility, embarrassed by timidity, fortified by faith, inculcated by practice, narrowed by custom, prompted by coquetry, unadorned by artifice, vitalized by thought, affable in manner, barren in intellect, cumbrous in style, experienced in duplicity, indulge in reverie, kept in abeyance, languish in obscurity, petulant in expression, wallow in idolatry, Waver in purpose, bring into disrepute, chill into apathy, claim to perpetuity, degenerate into monotony, deaf to entreaty, electrify into activity, excite to pity, goaded into action, incursions into controversy, inveigled into dispute, impervious to suggestion, lapse into pedantry, ripened into love, repugnant to justice, snubbed into quiescence, withdrawn into solitude, ascertain with exactness, behave with civility, cling with tenacity, echo with merriment, endure with fortitude, imbued with courage, move with alacrity, quiver with anxiety, relate with zest, and suffuse with spirituality. Kleiser also provides literary expressions and striking similes for the student to study. An example would be a brave but turbulent aristocracy, a face as pale as wax, a curious vexation fretted her, a mighty wind like a leviathan ploughed the brine, bartering the higher aspirations in life. Buffeted by all the winds of passion, cruel as death, deep shame and rankling remorse, essay of flight of folly, fatally and indissolubly untied, fluid as thought, guilty of girlish sentimentality, 
he airily lampooned their most cherished prejudices. Her thoughts outstripped her erring feet. His brow grew knit and gloomy. Her lips parted in a keen expectancy. His constraint was excruciating. So as students become familiar with some of these phrases, they begin to exercise discernment. Which phrasing is familiar, but not cliched? Simple, yet effective, or trite and uninteresting? They will begin to notice the particularities of a speaker's or author's turn of phrasing and begin to judge the effectiveness of the compositions. As their critical faculty becomes stronger, they might notice weak phrasing and like Paris's servant in Shakespeare's Trullius and Cressida, be embedded and emboldened to say, there's a stewed phrase indeed, an English teacher's fantasy perhaps. They will also become increasingly confident not to use stale and trite phrases, which can only be credited to those with little study and understanding. Ultimately, there is no better way in which to develop the mental qualities of clearness, accuracy and precision, and to improve and enlarge the intellectual powers generally than by regular, and at times, painstaking study of judiciously selected phrases and literary expressions. Ultimately, the strengthening of memory is a complex process. As educators, we should model good practices that develop a strong, powerful recall. As we speak in front of our students, we should be drawing easily from our store of literary treasures and sharing this love. Smith warns, though, that our ultimate love, desire, is shaped by practices, not ideas that are merely communicated to us. We must then learn to cultivate these memory-forming habits ourselves if we have any genuine power to pass these habits along to our students. Glass states that we are creatures of habit and our habits are forming themselves all the time. If we do not take care to form good habits, the bad ones establish themselves without effort, just as desirable plants require care while weeds thrive in untended soil. So developing a strong recall of quotes, ideas, words and phrasing will require effort and consistency. Smith articulates this sort of education is a constellation of practices, rituals and routines that inculcates a particular vision of the good life by inscribing or infusing that vision into the heart by means of material embodied practices. The repeated rhythms of these simple practices, pen to paper, help to form the love. In turn, there arises a stronger connection to the ideas and recall becomes a natural byproduct. The very simple process of pen to paper becomes one of the greatest tools for the student in developing cogent, persuasive, beautiful and original thinking. Finally, the commonplace book and vocabulary books together become the palpable symbols of what one's heart and mind love, value and want to remember. So that is the chapter, The Cultivation of Memory by me. 
Natalie Kennedy, and it's from the book Reclaiming Education, by Catherine, um, edited by Catherine Muncy and David Brooks, and it's available on Amazon. Look, I hope what I shared has encouraged you in some way to, you know, get that old-fashioned pen or pencil and paper out, jot down notes, not just to-do lists, not just shopping lists. If you hear a quote in a movie, in a podcast, in a book, it's something that someone says, write it down. Take the time to go back later and read over it. Get that in your memory. How many times have you been at a party and someone says, what are you reading? And you can't remember the title of the book you're reading. We've all been there. Take the time to write down the name of the play you went and saw two weeks ago with your friend. Was there a quote that you loved? Can you look it up and find it and write it down? Take the time to work on your memory. Don't wait till you're old and you start to be fearful that you've forgotten things. Start doing it now. I don't know about you, but growing up in the you know 90s, 80s and 90s, we had to memorise a lot of friends' home phone numbers. And now I can't even remember, you know, my best friend's mobile number. So it's harder and harder because technology has stepped in and made it so much easier for us to outsource our memory to our devices. But I encourage you, your brain is the best device you have and work on it. Spend the time, you know, you know, put that, you put, you put time aside to watch your favourite Netflix show, you put an hour aside, maybe a week or more to exercise and work on your body. Please work on your biggest organ, your biggest, well it's not really an organ, but your biggest uh, asset and that's your brain, your memory, okay? Our memories, if we don't exercise that part of our brain, they, uh, it will not get stronger, it will get weaker. So please start writing things down, get a nice book, you know, keep that as your commonplace book, you can add your vocab there too, and um, write all over your books, you know, especially if you own them, not if they're a library book, but write all over them, marginalia, make the book your own, okay, and I just hope that this has been helpful in some way to you, and um, all the best with your happy reading, happy note taking, and happy, happier memory recall. Right, bye for now.